welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and drinking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan, and in this episode, I will be covering a short story, not a novel by Agatha Christie. The short story in question is Double Sin, so we have a Poirot short story on our hands, which is always a cause for celebration. We really only have a handful of these left, unfortunately. So let's get right into it and talk a little bit about the publication history. Double Sin was first published as a standalone short story in the UK under the title By Road or Rail in the Sunday Dispatch on September 23rd, 1928. It was first published as a standalone short story in the U.S. under that same title by Road or Rail in Detective Story magazine on March 30th, 1929, a little later. I like this alternate title by Road or Rail, which is descriptive, (laughs) but for reasons I will explain later, I actually think Double Sin is one of Christie's better short story titles. Really, really clever title. Uh, So this one wasn't collected in book form in the UK till all the way in Poirot's early cases, which Collins Crime Club put out in 1974. That was their Christie for Christmas after Christie was unable to pump out another mystery. At that point in her life, the sausage factory had closed its doors. And also very unfortunately, we are getting up to that point in our review of the novels, believe it or not. And I think I'm going to have to note when we get to Poirot early cases and that hole that we had in 1974 before we get to Christie's last two novels and maybe devote a whole episode to the many short story collections of Christie because there really are a lot of them and we've referenced all of them, but it might actually be fun to just sort of talk about them en masse, as it were. So in the U.S., Double Sin was collected in 1961 as the titular story in Double Sin and Other Stories, which Dodd Mead put out, of course. By the way, this 1961 collection was one of the American editions that Collins Crime Club used to get to that magical and bogus <laughs> number of 80 books for Christie's 80th birthday, Passenger Frankfurt being her supposed 80th book, which I discussed in our last novel episode for Passenger to Frankfurt. And here is an interesting tidbit I picked up from John Curran, actually. So this short story and the mystery of the Baghdad chest, also known as the mystery of the Spanish chest, we will uh, discuss the title change when we cover that story or both versions of that story, which we have not covered yet. But anywho, these two Poirot short stories are the only two that feature Hastings and which are not published in 1923-24. Again, most of these Poirot short stories were published just in a flurry of creativity in the early 20s when Christie just could not be stopped. And, you know, she was still doing a lot in 1928, but not writing as fast and furiously as to Poirot short form stories anyway. So we have this one in 1928 and then Baghdad Chest in 1932. And then all the Poirot short stories after 1932 do not feature Hastings. I just thought that was an interesting little tidbit for you. Again, we really are getting to the end of our review of the Poirot short stories. Let's move right along and talk about the victim of Double Sin. And this is a little complicated because this is one of those Christie stories where there's one person who appears to be the victim, and then another who actually is (laughs) the victim. It's also not a murder mystery. This is a story featuring a theft, though I am thrilled to report it is not a jewel heist. Nary, a precious gem, appears in these pages. Have no fear. So let's start with the putative victim, who would be Miss Mary Durant, 
I would have said Durant, but on the Suchet adaptation, it was pronounced Durant. So I shall follow the Suchet adaptation. They certainly know better than I. Mary is the niece of one Elizabeth Penn, and she is fulfilling a commission for her aunt Elizabeth, who owns an antique shop. Uh, basically, Mary is riding on a motor coach and carrying a case of miniatures to be delivered and then purchased by a rich and rude American named Mr. J. Baker Wood. But alas, the miniatures are stolen while she is on route. So I guess we may as well add Elizabeth Penn as a putative victim as well. And as to Elizabeth Penn, I really was getting shades of Miss Marple by the way Christy described her when we meet her. Quote, white hair with pink and white skin and blue eyes. Round her rather bent shoulders, she wore a cape of priceless old lace. And surely a nice pink old lady in a Christy story wearing lace must be harmless and innocent, right? There couldn't be any more than meets the eye in that case, obviously. All right, let's move along to the suspects. And of course, our primary suspect is that American, Mr. J. Baker Wood, as I mentioned. He is, quote, a large, vulgar man, very much overdressed and wearing a diamond solitaire ring. He was blustering and noisy. In other words, he's an American. Excuse me while I adjust my diamond solitaire ring a moment. <laughs> um, who knows what depths this art collector would sink to for those miniatures. Very, very big suspect in this story. And then another big suspect is a fellow traveler on the motor coach who gets lots of suspicion thrown his way. Eventually, we learn his name. That name is Mr. Norton Kane. And by far his most distinguishing characteristic, it is commented on a lot, is his garbage mustache. Uh, perhaps this garbage mustache alone is enough to throw him in jail. We shall see. And that is really it as to suspects. Uh, as is so often the case in a Christie short story, we've got a small suspect list here. But as is so often the case, it's enough for purposes of the miniature puzzle mystery we're tasked with solving. So let's get right into it and talk a little bit about the world as it appears to be. We open hooray in the first person, since as I already mentioned, this is the second to last borrow short story to feature Hastings. He is, of course, narrating. It's all very joyful and jovial. Hastings is telling us how Poirot has been working himself to the bone, given that he is, quote, a strange mixture of Flemish thrift and artistic fervor. This brought up a question for me, which is, is Hastings, and by extension Christie, saying that Poirot is Flemish? Because as I understand it, the Flemish population within Belgium speaks Dutch, or really Flemish, uh, which I believe is the Flemish people's own variation of Dutch, and that they are distinct from the French-speaking Walloon population. Uh, fun fact I didn't know until I looked into it for this episode, but apparently the Flemish population outnumbers the French-speaking population in Belgium. But even so, surely the Francophone Poirot cannot be among them, right? I think that what Christie's doing here is that she's just using Flemish as a sort of synonym of Belgian, which people do from time to time, even though it's a tad inaccurate. It's kind of like a synecdoche, you know, like when we say the crown to mean the monarchy, et cetera, et cetera. That's what I believe is happening here. But if I am misunderstanding this, if there is anyone out there, especially any Belgians, Flemish or otherwise, who would like to educate me on this matter, please do. I prefer email. Anywho, uh, Hastings forces Poirot to take a holiday since he has been overworking himself so much. So they plan to go to that well-known South Coast resort, Ebermouth. As far as I can tell, Ebermouth is not a real place, but it seems to be a stand-in for Christie's hometown of Torquay, which makes sense, especially when Mary Durant actually laments later in the story. I'm quoting her now. 
Ebermouth is quite spoiled in the summers nowadays. My aunt says it used to be quite different. Now one can hardly get along the pavements for the crowd. I can just imagine people saying that about Torquay back in 1928. I'll bet they say it now. <laughs> Honestly, they were probably saying it in 1890, the year that Christie was born. But in any case, Hastings is sent to make the train reservations. And in a twist that reminded me of when Jack was told to sell the cow and get some food and returned home with a handful of beans, uh, Hastings returns with a cockamamie plan to take a motor coach instead of a train. Uh, Apparently, he thinks it would be more scenic. Poirot, true to self, immediately wonders what will happen if it rains, to which Hastings replies, there's a hood in all that. Oof. Uh, but Poirot agrees to go because he can see Hastings really wants to. Aw. But first, Poirot tries very hard to haggle with the ticket seller at the Speedy Cars office. Uh, and Poirot's beef is that they should only have to pay half since they're going one way. And the fare charged each passenger is for a return or a round trip for us American listeners. And you might wonder why I am harping on such a minor plot point, but have no fear. This will turn out to be significant later on. And the ticket seller is firm. No discount for them. And Poirot is extremely miffed. So during all this drama over the ticket buying, Hastings manages to finagle a seat next to a lady with auburn hair, which, as Poirot rightly points out, means that Hastings is powerless to her charms. This is a consistent characteristic of Hastings's throughout the canon. Poirot, on the other hand, is interested in a young man traveling in their coach who is trying, but as yet not succeeding in growing a mustache. And as he puts it, I have sympathy for all who attempt it. But is that all that intrigues Poirot about this man? Hmm. We shall see. On the morning of their excursion, Hastings details Poirot's outfit, which is a delight. So I'm going to read it out here. A woolly waistcoat, a Macintosh, a heavy overcoat, and two mufflers in addition to his thickest suit. He also downs two tablets of anti-grip before starting and brings more anti-grip tablets with him just in case. A grip is, of course, an old-fashioned term for the flu. And we know from many a past story that Poirot does not trust the fresh air. Predictably, I don't have much tolerance for infectious disease humor these days, but I do appreciate the character consistency as to these two in lots of different ways already. And we're still just at the very start of our story. I quite enjoyed the short story, actually. This motor coach, by the way, is obviously a very different coach from the bus-like coaches many of us have probably ridden in our lives. As far as I can tell, the difference between a coach and a bus is that a coach is generally for traveling longer distances. It's a bit bigger and more comfortable. You know, the coaches I've been on have softer seats. Maybe the seats are a little bit larger. It's certainly all much more plush with more room for one's luggage underneath the seating area than, say, a school bus (laughs) or a commuter bus in a city. But even so, I think that this motor coach is pretty different from that sort of coach. You know, it doesn't seem to have a roof. It also doesn't seem to seat much more than 20 or so people at most, judging by the seat numbers that Poirot and Hastings talk about at the beginning of the story. So I have to imagine it's pretty plush. And, you know, the coach that David Suchet and Hugh Fraser travel on in the episode based on the story certainly looks nice, but uh, we'll get to the adaptation in a bit. It too is a delight. So on the trip, Poirot and Hastings chat with the auburn-haired lady, 
who they learn is named Mary Durant and who is carrying a case of miniatures worth 500 pounds, which is something like 30,000 pounds in today's money. So let's just keep that in mind. Whoa, those are some extremely valuable miniatures. They were in fact painted by Richard Cosway. That's who Mary thinks they were painted by anyway. She's not totally sure. She's still just getting her feet wet in this whole antiques thing. I learned that Richard Cosway was a leading portrait painter in England during the Regency era, very active in the late 18th and early 19th century, uh, who was noted for his miniatures in particular. And fun fact, his wife, Mariah, was a painter too, and she was a close friend of Thomas Jefferson's. So that's cool. The happy motor coach stops for lunch, uh, you know, as one does on a road trip. This is Poirot and Hastings truly road tripping here. They go to a restaurant where there are a lot, there are a lot of sharabanks about as well. So we know we're in true tourist hell or heaven, as the case may be. I think it might be heaven for Hastings and hell for Poirot. But in the busy restaurant, they manage to snag a table for three. And Mary chooses the seat facing the window. And in the middle of lunch, she rushes off because she thinks that their seatmate on the motor coach, the man with the wispy mustache, was just taking her suitcase out of the coach. She sees this happening through the window. But it turns out she was mistaken. He was taking his own suitcase out and his suitcase just happened to look like hers. So she's a bit chagrined by all this. Um, And then we get a charming little back and forth in which Poirot asks Mary to guess what she thinks he does for a living. And that made me think all the way back to Death in the Clouds. I believe it's Death in the Clouds where uh, one of the main characters in that book thinks that Poirot might be a hairdresser. (laughs) Fortunately, Mary does not guess uh, that he is a hairdresser. She says maybe he's a conjurer and he's very amused by this. He says he's pretty much the opposite of a conjurer since conjurers make things disappear and he makes things that have disappeared reappear. Uh, Then after lunch, Poirot basically tells Hastings that Mary Durant is an idiot since she confided in two strangers, i.e. them, as to harboring these valuable miniatures worth 500 pounds. And, you know, he says she shouldn't be so naive. And alas, Poirot's fears about Mary's lack of prowess when it comes to shepherding these miniatures are as prescient as his fears almost always are. Later that day, she rushes over to them in their hotel room. They're all staying at the same hotel. And she says that someone has stolen the miniatures from her suitcase. This happened at some point during the day while they were traveling. They were in a crocodile dispatch case and the case was forced open. The miniatures are nowhere to be seen. Oh my God, what is she going to do? Her aunt is going to be so upset. She's making such a horrible start in this business. Even worse... The miniatures were, in fact, delivered to that rude American, Mr. Baker Wood. He's already paid for them. And according to him, the woman who brought them to him was, quote, a tall woman, middle-aged, gray hair, blotchy complexion, and a budding mustache. Hmm. So before we get to our clues, it seems pretty obvious who did this. It's got to be the suspicious man with the wispy mustache, of course. Mary already thought she caught him rifling through her suitcase. So it looks like this Mr. Norton Kane is in for it. But fortunately for Mr. Kane and for us, we do have some clues to bridge us on over into the world as it actually is. So clue number one, why oh why would a lady choose to sit at a table in a restaurant facing the window? The deduction here is that, yes, this is very strange because apparently it's unfeminine Those are Poirot's words, not mine. It is unfeminine to do this. I guess because ladies don't like to put themselves on display or to observe comings and goings too closely. I don't know. Yikes. 
But anyway, apparently this should make us suspicious of Mary when she does this, especially since it's her window facing seat that allows her to supposedly see Norton Kane taking out a suitcase she thinks is hers from the motor coach. You know, this is the main suspicious thing Norton Kane even does. And the only one who saw it is Mary Durant. So did it even happen? So I'd say in a way, we kind of have an eyewitness testimony corollary here to clue number one, in which we shouldn't even really trust what she says, since she's the only one who saw it. Clue number two is a classic. It has to do with costuming. We're told that the woman who came to sell the miniatures to Mr. Wood had a budding mustache. And we, of course, had all sorts of chatter as to Norton Kane's wispy mustache. Poirot has so much pity for poor Mr. Kane and his subpar mustache. But so often in Christie, the safest or most obvious assumption isn't the right one. And the deduction here that an astute reader might make is that they're going to realize the woman with the budding mustache can't be Norton Kane because it's too obvious. Let's also note that mustaches can be pasted on. And given that the only other significant characters in this story are ladies, and that only one of those two ladies could have possibly had the opportunity to get to Mr. Wood in time to sell him those miniatures, it seems fairly clear that the pink and white cheeked Aunt Elizabeth must have been engaging in some costuming. Clue number three is a meta clue, my favorite kind of clue. This story reminded me of the Stymphalian birds, which is one of my favorite of the labors of Hercules. So go ahead and fast forward 30 or 60 seconds if you haven't yet read the Stymphalian birds. But in that story, we had two sinister seeming ladies and two nice seeming ladies. Hmm. Can you guess which ones were the villains? Yes, I do realize this is the opposite of our when people tell you who they are, believe them clue. The my Angelou Oprah clue, as Catherine and I have liked to call it in the past. But that's fine. You know, this is why Christie is tricky because sometimes people are truthful about who they are and other times people wear masks. That is how life works and that is how Christie works. No one ever said that consistency was a requirement when it comes to cluing in mysteries, especially mysteries across different stories. In fact, I would argue that this is part of Christie's brilliance, that she changes it up as much as she does. But the deduction here is that we've got some major masking going on, you know, both literally and figuratively. Uh, the nice-seeming aunt and niece are big old thieves, of course. They're scam artists. So this is just bringing us right on over into the world as it actually is. And Poirot spills the beans pretty spectacularly, actually. When he meets the elderly Elizabeth Penn, the first words out of his mouth are, Mademoiselle Penn, the effect is changing charming, but you should really grow a mustache. Gasps all around. <gasps> because Miss Penn and her niece were, of course, scamming Mr. Bakerwood. And Poirot first noticed something was amiss when Norton Kane bought his ticket and Mary Durant's attention was suddenly riveted on him. And given that Norton had a garbage mustache and was not very prepossessing of appearance, he knew that it couldn't have been a physical attraction. And Poirot, unaffected by Mary's auburn hair, realized that Mary was fastening on poor Norton as a mark. That's why she chose the seat in the restaurant facing the window. That's why she pretended to suspect him of stealing her suitcase. The miniatures were never actually in that crocodile dispatch case in the motor coach. Aunt Elizabeth had them all the time. And as Poirot tells it, what she does on the day in question is she heads on over to Mr. Wood, where she, quote, holds herself erect, wears large boots, alters her complexion with a few unseemly blotches, and crowning touch adds a few sparse hairs to her upper lip. What then? A masculine woman, says Mr. Wood, and a man in disguise, say we at once. So what we have here is a woman 
dressing up as a woman who seems to be a man. I mean, that is some Shakespearean stuff right there. Like Aunt Elizabeth's disguise totally has as many layers to it as uh, Rosalind's in the middle of As You Like It. In other words, two layers. (laughs) But still, it's very clever and pleasing, I think, once we parse out what's going on here. The scam was that Aunt Elizabeth and her niece Mary would pocket poor Mr. Woods 500 pounds, and then they would make another 500 pounds by having the miniatures returned to them and then selling them again. Double the money, double the sin. And by the way, the thing that interested Poirot about Norton Kane wasn't just that Mary's attention was fastened on him, but it was the wispy mustache itself. Because in Poirot's mustache-addled brain, anyone with a garbage mustache like that could not be a wrongdoer. This is how Poirot puts it. A criminal is either clean-shaven or he has a proper mustache that can be removed at will. Sure. (laughs) And we actually close in fine fashion, which is to say with Poirot throwing some major shade on Captain Hastings. This is what he says. Mademoiselle Mary has only to find a couple of mugs who will be sympathetic to her charm and champion beauty in distress. But one of the mugs was no mug. He was Hercule Poirot. And Hastings, of course, sees what Poirot is implying here, and he protests that Poirot was lying when he said he was going to help a stranger. But Poirot protests right back. This is what he says. Never do I deceive you, Hastings. I only permit you to deceive yourself. I was referring to Mr. Baker Wood, a stranger to these shores. His face darkened. Ah, when I think of that imposition, that iniquitous overcharge, the same fair single to Sherlock as return, my blood boils to protect the visitor. Not a pleasant man, Mr. Baker would not, as you would say, sympathetic, but a visitor. And we visitors, Hastings, must stand together. Me, I am all for the visitors. That is our final line. And this really ends up being a very pro-foreigner story, right? It's one outsider sticking up for the other. So let's give Christy her due, as I always love to do when she does that. And she does that a lot, actually. And I do love that the double sin in question here pertains to the double charging of Mr. Wood if he were the one who they resold the miniatures to, or at least the doubling of compensation that Elizabeth Penn and her niece will get for these miniatures. But Poirot is also, of course, likening this double charge to the fact that he and Hastings had to pay the same amount for a one-way fare as others paid for a return slash round trip fare. Like he is still very much not over that by the end of the story. And that is the end and it's brilliant. And the title makes me laugh and I love it. Don't Touch That Dial. We'll be back in a moment with the rest of our episode. We just wanted to take a moment to ask you, our dear listeners, for a favor. If you haven't already done so, we would very much appreciate it. If you take a moment to, you know, give us a rating or a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really helps the podcast out because ratings and reviews make it much easier for other Christie fans such as yourselves to find our podcast. And the more ratings and reviews we get, the more people we can reach. It should take you a matter of seconds and lucky you we're going to provide you with those seconds right now so go to it thank you so much and now back to our regularly scheduled programming All right, so let's discuss the adaptation that we have for this short story. It appears in season slash series two of our beloved David Suchet Poirot program. 
It aired on February 11th, 1990, nearly 32 years ago to the day. Oh, it has been quite some time, especially since those early seasons. So, of course, since it's an early episode, we have lots of Hastings and Miss Lemon and Inspector Jap hijinks. And I am here for all of it. And actually, one of you contacted me before I watched the episode uh, to let me know that this is a special episode for you. And I'm just going to read out the relevant part of the email because I found it really charming. I just wanted to drop an email to say how much I'm looking forward to listening to your episode on Double Sin. I've got a soft spot for it because one of my dear friends was an extra in the David Suchet adaptation as a child, and the scenes in the pub were filmed in her house. If I recall correctly, her parents agreed that their home in the Lake District could be used for filming as long as their daughters appeared in the episode. I just say I didn't notice when their daughters appeared in the episode, but I very much did notice the scenes in the pub because there are some locals that are gawking at Poirot and it's very odd. It's very hamily done. Hastings, why do those people keep staring at me and push each other and laugh? I don't think they've ever seen anyone quite like you before, Poirot. Ah. but also amusingly done. I never would have known that that was a house and not an actual pub. It's all very well-dressed as the sets almost always are in this series. And I actually think this episode is a great example of how the producers were able to expand a lot of the Poirot short stories to 50 minutes while preserving or even enhancing the spirit of the original. And I'd argue they actually did do a little bit of enhancing in this episode. And, you know, Catherine and I over the years have liked to poke fun at all the chase sequences and Hastings's sport of the episode that they have him engaging in. But in actuality, it's often character-based hijinks that do the heavy lifting. And those sorts of hijinks are always welcome. And I'm going to highlight a few of them. But first, I am astonished to report that David Suchet himself does not agree with me as to my regard for this episode. David Suchet, who almost uniformly has something nice to say about every episode of the Poirot series in his book, Poirot and Me, was not a fan of this episode. It's one of three he earmarks in the second season slash series as not liking very much. This is what he says. I'm afraid the truth is that I was never really happy with Double Sin, The Adventure of the Cheap Flat, and The Adventure of the Western Star. They all seemed a little flat to me, a little too one-dimensional compared to the others. As to Doubleson in particular, here's what he has to say. The lovely Elspeth Gray, wife of Lord Brian Ricks, the Brian is in quotes, played Mary's wheelchair-bound mother, and there was rather a fine denouement in the hotel dining room, but somehow the film did not quite sing in the way that I wanted it to, in spite of Clive Exton's fine script. I have to say, I totally disagree. I am shocked that uh, David Suchet does not have affection for this episode. Um, But, you know, apparently Christie's own daughter, Rosalind, the head of the estate after... Christie died, uh, agreed with Suchet because this is one of the titles Mark Aldridge notes in Agatha Christie's Poirot, The Greatest Detective in the World, that Rosalind highlighted as being weaker. She also included the Cornish mystery and How Does Your Garden Grow in that list, two titles we covered recently, both of which I also really enjoyed. So just more hearty disagreement here because I guess I just love all Christie. <laughs> um, but I have to think the fact that this story was adapted in the second season slash series means that the producers of the Suchet series agreed with me. And you can really tell because there's just so much fun had. I mean, first of all, at the very beginning of the episode, they make a lot out of Poirot's hatred of the great outdoors and Hastings' enthusiasm for it. And I was just really tickled by this statement that Poirot makes. 
Did you know, Hastings, that the Earth is cooling at a rate of three degrees every 12,000 years? No, I didn't know that, no. Ah. I mean, Poirot might be happy to learn about climate change slash global warming now. <laughs> I really don't want to joke about that. But that line definitely stuck out, especially uh, watching from 2022. Then there's some fun had at Poirot's expense between Captain Hastings and Miss Lemon, which is always, always an absolute delight. I'm worried about Poirot, Miss Lemon. He's talking about retirement. That's because he hasn't had an interesting case for five minutes. I must have had my keys to let myself in. Is that all it is? That and the fact someone said he was middle-aged. Trouble is Mr. Dicker kept talking. Well, he's always been middle-aged. Have you seen that photograph of him at his christening? I know. He looks as though he's about to address a board meeting. Who looks as if he's about to address a board meeting? Oh, uh, this fellow I know. Uh, funny chap. Well, funny, uh, quite serious, really. Company director. Hastings. As a matter of fact... Hastings. Right. In the story, Poirot is extremely busy, and he's taking a break. But in the episode, he actually hasn't been working much at all. And he rather petulantly insists that he is retiring. He's not going to be a detective anymore. And Hastings has to lead this case. So, of course, poor Hastings just makes a mess of it. And there's a really funny sequence in which he has a eureka moment. Oh, my God. What is it, Captain Hastings? I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. Miss Penn, I can get your miniatures back. You may be able to help, too. Excuse me. Hastings, wait. Come on, Poirot. What on earth are you playing at, Hastings? I've got it, Poirot. What? What have you got? The answer to this case. It must have been the haddock. I feel wonderful. Hastings! And he thinks he's solved everything, and of course he hasn't solved anything, and... And there's just a lot of Hastings ridicule in this episode, but it's all as loving as it usually is. There's also a fabulous runner as to the Poirot-Jap relationship. So for most of the episode, Poirot is really cold to Jap. And at one point, Hastings even asks, why were you mean to Jap? <laughs> it's like these four are in high school. I love it. And it seems that Poirot is angry that Jap is giving lectures about his police work, apparently to the exclusion of Poirot's assistance in said cases. And indeed, when Poirot sneaks into Jap's lecture late in the episode, it seems that his worst fears are confirmed. And at the conclusion of a case, there are always other parties, not of the police force, who will claim to have solved it. I refer, of course, to that bane of the policeman's life, the amateur sleuth, or worse still, the professional private detective. The professional private detective, ladies and gentlemen, is not the glamorous figure of fiction. He is a man who, failing in more worthy walks of life and being of meddlesome and troublemaking disposition, finally comes to rest in a dingy office over the chip shop where he plies for hire in the sordid world of petty crime and divorce. But au contraire. Except, I have to say, for one. I have been fortunate in my career in that many, indeed perhaps most, of my cases have been shared with that most extraordinary of private detectives. And if I may borrow a word from his own native tongue, that doyen of the Belgian police force, Monsieur Hercule Poirot. 
I think I may say, without fear of contradiction, that Hercule Poirot has one of the most original minds of the 20th century. Intelligent, brave, sensitive, devastatingly quick. Hercule Poirot stands head and shoulders above any other detective of my considerable experience. That really brought a tear to my eye, especially since they never actually say anything to each other. I mean, that's Poirot listening essentially at the door. <laughs> he, he never actually comes into the lecture. Jap does not see him there. By the end of the episode, Jap does know that Poirot was carrying around a clipping of Jap's lecture so that he probably did see or hear some of it, but they don't talk about it. And for me, it was very Saoirse Ronan and Laurie Metcalf and Lady Bird. <laughs> I'm just going to let that reference rest without a clip. If you've seen the movie, you get it. And if you haven't seen the movie, see the movie. One of my favorites. I believe a Catherine favorite as well. But in terms of further hijinks, we also have a car chase that involves getting stuck behind a slow-moving lorry. Yes! Uh, the lorry is not backing up into a lane, but I will take it. We also have this great exchange between Hastings and a minor character in the episode. Don't you know what it's like to love a man? Well, uh... No, uh, not exactly. Oh, Hastings, you know you love Poirot. Come on, just own it. <laughs> I also have to say that the Midland Hotel, which is the hotel where they stay for the majority of the episode once they've actually taken this motor coach to the resort town where the action takes place. I don't know if it's ever actually name-checked as Ebermouth. It's called the Anchor Hotel in the short story, but it's called the Midland Hotel in the episode. And it is fabulously Art Deco, although I believe it's the Streamline Modern version of Art Deco. And that is a major shout out to Catherine Brobeck because she is the one who taught me, in fact, about Streamline Modern. No one knew their architecture and urban and interior design like Catherine Brobeck. Streamline Modern is a sleeker and starker take on Art Deco. And the Midland Hotel just struck me as a great example of that. It's, it has a plain white facade. It has these smooth, polished surfaces and long curves. The internal staircase of the hotel, which gets a really nice long tracking shot, is just fantastic. I suppose on the minus side, they did fabricate this whole side plot where Norton Kane, the man with the wispy mustache, is a novelist who's eloping with a member of the aristocracy. It's like, sure. <laughs> it all felt a little bit later seasons of Downton Abbey when the wheels were falling off the train <laughs> to me. But I did appreciate the look on Norton Kane, the novelist's face, when the aristocratic lady is saying goodbye to Hastings. And she says, I'm sure you'll catch your robber. It's really priceless. He's like, uh, good luck with this idiot at the helm. <laughs> and then the police shade Hastings too. And the last thing I will note, this is another added side plot, but I would definitely put it on the plus side, is this ridiculous runner in which Miss Lemon can't find her keys to Poirot's flat and she's desperate to find them because she because she thinks Poirot will never forgive her or think the same of her if she has to admit that she's lost them. It's really that simple. I can't even call it a storyline. That's why I'm calling it a runner. It has nothing to do with the mystery. There's no attempt made to connect it to the mystery. It's not like anything Miss Lemon does informs the mystery or vice versa. But this runner does involve a dream sequence, which I won't clip because it won't play over audio. But we get the voice of Poirot coming out of Hastings's mouth and the voice of Hastings coming out of Poirot's mouth. And Miss Lemon eventually uses Poirot's order and method to relocate her keys. She 
does find them. They're like in a fruit bowl or at least like a bowl that's kind of on the hall table. Come up to the door. Take keys out of bag. Unlock door. Penny for the guy, miss. I come in. Dicker follows still talking. Shortening courage and wasting all your money. Oh, it works. It really works. That is it. It is so slight and honestly so dumb. And yet Pauline Moran sells it as she does everything on this series. I cherish her. It makes me very sad that I cannot talk about how much I love Pauline Moran with Catherine because no one loved Pauline Moran more than she. But on that bittersweet note, I think I have to end my discussion of the Double Sin episode, which I just really loved. Well, that is Double Sin our latest Poirot short story. Our next novel coming up is not a Poirot. It is a Miss Marple. It is Nemesis. Very, very excited for that. And also for the guest co-host I managed to snag for that episode, I'm actually going to leave that as a little bit of a tantalizing mystery for now because Nemesis is not our next episode. The next time you hear from me, I will be in conversation with Sophie Hanna, and I promise <laughs> this podcast is not just going to become a, the Kemper Donovan Sophie Hanna podcast, though I imagine many of you would be more than okay with that. Perhaps not Sophie herself, but <laughs> Sophie has written a new mystery of her own. It is called The Couple at the Table. It is fantastic. There are lots of Christie-ish things about it. And you know that there is no higher compliment that I can give a mystery. So I really can't wait to talk to her about that and about Agatha Christie. We could do that, obviously, uh, for an infinite amount of time, but we won't. I promise that this upcoming episode will be shorter than our Passenger to Frankfurt episode, Uh, but I'm really looking forward to that. And then after that, I will be reviewing Nemesis, which is not our last Miss Marple, though it is the last Miss Marple that Christy wrote. And I think you can really tell that actually. And it's part of what makes that book so special. So I'm really, really looking forward to sharing that book with all of you. Uh, In the meantime, if you would like bonus content from me and Catherine and moving forward me, you can head on over to the All About Agatha Patreon account, which is at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. You can email me at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. The podcast is on Twitter at allaboutthedame, and it is also on Instagram at allaboutagatha. And I would really, really appreciate it if you could take a moment to uh, give us a rating and or a review. It still helps us out a lot. We're always looking to expand the community. I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.